Let me entertain you. And welcome to another episode of Let Me Entertain You, where I take you inside the minds of musical theatre. In An American in Paris, the musical, the performers act, sing, dance, tap dance, and perform ballet all on a sprung floor. These elements require a particularly good sound design, which for this musical is an Australian creation by Kelvin Getty. I wanted to find out more about sound design and the challenges of this unique production. I was thrilled to speak to Jackson Scandrett, who was assistant to the sound designer, Kelvin's team at System Sound. And as you will hear, he has a wealth of knowledge. Without further ado, my guest, Jackson Scandrett. One, two, three, four. We're here for the opening night of American in Paris, and I have someone with me that's very special. My name's Jack Scandrett. I'm an assistant to Kelvin Getty, the sound designer. Jack Scandrett, and you're here for the Sydney opening. Yeah, well, I'm very fortunate to be able to come along and join them on the Sydney opening. I was with the company for the Brisbane season. I actually stood in and filled in the role of backstage for radio mics because uh, we kept uh, having to lose people due to COVID. But it's lovely to come out here and see the show from the front. Yeah, and I really wanted to talk to you about sound and how this is a particular show and how you actually mic something for when it's ballet and it's tap and jazz all in one. How hard was it? Was this a difficult project for you? Not necessarily. Um, one of the considerations with classic musical theatre like this is keeping the microphones as discreet as possible. So in this show it was hairline microphones. Often one of the problems that we have with hairline microphones on dance-heavy shows is sweat. It takes a lot of diligent monitoring of that. Uh, you have to really keep on top of it by listening to all of the microphones backstage and making sure that none of the microphones are being filled with sweat. It really will ruin the sound. One of the other considerations that we had was with tap numbers in the show, we had to mic each person's legs if they were in a tap number. And if they were wearing tap shoes, because we have a sprung floor for the ballet, we had to actually tweak the sound to get the sound of taps. Usually taps done on hardwood floors. Wow. I think a lot of people didn't know that. No, no, no. It was certainly a sort of unique thing for us. The actual sound of uh, tap shoes on a sprung ballet floor is nothing like what you heard tonight. Naturally, it's, it sounds quite strange, actually. So tell me more about the process of doing something like that. Are you mixing it from the board live or is it something else? Well, the sound is entirely live operated every night. It's pre-programmed and the levels are all set with a sound designer and that's done during the production period and it's redone every time the show resettles to make sure that each venue's balanced properly. The sound designer stands in for the first week or so until the show's open and then every single show from then is mixed by an operator who works out the front. 
mixing those levels and changing changing them according to scene, and with two team members backstage who keep the show going. Does that also mean that when there's a tap number, there is that element of surprise because you haven't actually turned on the microphone? Well, the microphones are definitely well and truly on, but there's one down each of the legs of the people tapping, which is taped down right next to their shoe. And the element of surprise is, of course, always that... Whilst you've checked the mics backstage, by the time they get on stage and they start kicking around, you never know if one's going to break, if one of the connections breaks, and it's a very loud sound. It's a short circuit. So where does it get attached? Is it, is it, does you have to change the design of the shoe, or is it something that it's attached through the ankle? No, well, it's sometimes in America they actually build the tap unit into the actual shoe. But, uh, but for this one, what we did is we have two microphone cables that are split. They run down either leg, and we actually have to hold the microphones to their legs as they get dressed. It's really quite awkward. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. So the, the actor will have to get fully undressed. We hold them down on their ankles. They pull their stockings up over the top of it. Then we tape them down onto their shoes. And then we follow them right until they go on stage because, of course, every time they move their leg or stretch or whatnot, it can get pulled. Yeah. So it's really quite a bizarre thing, yeah. Uh, there's 1.8 metres of cable on each side going down their legs. Are you... Yeah, it's just coiled in a way so that if they extend their leg, it doesn't pull and then pull the microphone out of position. Now, I've just seen um, Stairway. Of course, it was the male, it was the male and female ensemble. The male wearing the black tuxedos, so that wouldn't be so hard to hide. But the ladies were wearing not necessarily. But one of the other things that becomes a problem is if fibres from the pants get caught inside the diaphragm of the microphones, which of course is also very loud. And I'll note that a lot of the guys have top hats on. Yes. And so of course microphones have to be put into their top hats with their own transmitters. So how many microphones? Are we talking about for I'm a sure project I like this? I believe it's 44. Wow. Yeah. So each, each one of those microphones themselves, the microphone cable and the microphone attached to it, is bought for the show. It's not, not something that goes on and works for 10 years. It's something that only comes into existence for the show, and they're very expensive on their own. Mm. But then each one of those transmitters has its own radio frequency as well. And we end up with 44 of them on a show, and spares. So, so how many people in the actual show? So if it's 44, is that one per person, or is that more? One per person, and then for all of the, um, the principals, we have two. And they've been loomed together, so uh, each principal has two mics on them. In some cases, we put them in, in their costume in case the mics are covered. So the battery pack is just one, and it's the actual mic, so many leads coming from one battery pack? No, there's a battery pack for each one of the microphones. Wow. So Lise, she has two, uh, one inside her costume as well, depending yeah. on the spot. When she comes out of the big ballet at the end, we have to hide one in her clothing in case she sweated out the one on her head. Yeah. Just because of the 20 minutes of dance. We actually take the microphone off Robbie for the ballet at the end because he dances for 15 minutes. Yes. Completely sweat it off and put it on in about 20 seconds at the very end before he goes back on stage. Wow. Yeah. Because uh, that number, that 17 minute number, oh, is brilliant. absolutely brilliant. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I think he does uh, five grand jetés on the stage and perfect every single time. So what's your history, Jack? Uh, well, I come from a theatrical sound design family. My father, John Scandrick, founded System Sound right. in 1979. <laughs> System Sound became synonymous with musical theatre productions, mm -hmm. um, especially during the Cameron Mackintosh days. Mm -hmm. So they did the sound for Phantom of the Opera, mm -hmm. uh, Les Mis, but it goes back a lot further than that, all the way back to J.C. Williamson when that was the main theatre wow. company in Australia. Are you only based in Brisbane? Well, I'm personally based in the Sunshine Coast, but System Sound's based in Melbourne. Right. So, yeah, just out of Port Melbourne. So you really do travel with the show wherever they need you? I try to. <laughs> Any excuse, really. All this stuff that had to be done for this show, was it basically um, given to you like a handbook or were there things that you actually created yourself? Well, de it depends entirely on what element of it... Oh, hey. Would be well. So I suppose. Uh, yeah, that's okay. I can. Ah, uh, yes. 
So we've just got me moved out of the theatre, so we'll just keep on talking. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be able to hear. <laughs> so is there a handbook? Well, depending on the show, in the instance where the show is purchased in its entirety, including the original design from overseas, a design is sent over with virtually what they call a Bible, which describes every element of the design, including microphone placement, layout of scenes, every single specific you can think of, including even the microphone make, say, at the desk, that sort of thing. The sound effects, of course. But in this instance, what we're given is a rough indication from the director, and of course they forward some basic material to us, like the sound script if we're lucky, but a lot of it is made up by us as we go. And in this case, it has been an original Australian sound design. Which really? Is great. Yeah, entirely. So tell me more about what else you did, because I don't know anything about it, and I don't think any of my listeners would. Um, sound design is really a lot more comprehensive than what people are aware. Aside from providing microphones for the orchestra, balancing that levels, mixing consoles, speaker system. No, 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 I suppose, yeah, in terms of providing sound for theatre, not only are you installing a completely temporary system, sound design for theatre and engineering is interesting because you're designing something that's supposed to be totally live every single night. You're also taking it to a place... It's a transient thing. Yeah, it's a fully Australian design. I think what people wouldn't realise is that every element of the sound provided for a musical theatre show, including this one, is completely created and brought to the theatre for only that production. We don't use anything in-house. So the mixing console, the speakers, everything is brought and installed over a period of a week just for that production. It's tuned just for that production. And we're looking at, like, you know, in some cases upwards of 120 speakers. There could be 30 in the band. There could be surround speakers. I mean, we're looking at eight subwoofers or, you know, 14 speakers per side and speakers in the centre, foldback, uh, 44 channels of microphones. It's enormous. It's usually about a semi-container worth of equipment. And each one of those things need to be monitored for maintenance purposes. Each one of those things is checked every single day. We go through checks before every single show, check every speaker's working, uh, every line for the band, every uh, microphone for each one of the performers. This is a highly energy-charged show. You said before there was a all-Australian design. So therefore, knowing that this is highly more dance than any other musical, um, did, you, did you have to change your approach in designing for the show? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear dance show is broken microphones and sweating, sweating microphones. And I suppose that's one of the only things that a dance show would bring to the table in terms of considerations you would preemptively go in with. I don't think there were any things that really stuck out otherwise. Unlike a lot of other more modern musicals, this production is classic in the sense that the orchestra is a true orchestra. We're not running any special effects. There's no track. There's nothing, none of the hallmarks of a modern production. You look at something like School of Rock or Moulin Rouge, we're talking a lot of very expensive production equipment. This is an orchestra, ballet dancers and musical theatre principles. So it's a bit unique in that sense. Yes, it is so unique. It's a 30-piece orchestra? Uh, depends on the city. We were lucky with Orchestra Victoria in Melbourne. We had eight viol... Uh, well, I think it was eight violins, actually. It was a rather large string section. Um, generally not. 
One of the tricks with musical theatre these days uh, is, well, I mean, it wasn't as much of a thing back in the old days, possibly because you couldn't have it, but we've got keyboards that double as other instruments. So whilst we've got a grand piano and we've got a fabulous pianist, Harry, playing that, we do have keyboards that can double as other instruments. So if there's anything that you wouldn't really find in the pit or you wouldn't have the space for, but I do believe that we have... I say probably about 13 musicians in the pit. Do we tour the percussionist? We tour three of the pianists. So we've got three people who can play the, the piano role. Am I correct in that? No, I think it's two. Harry and Paul. Paul White, the other guy who's on the in the orchestra pit. Associate MD, fabulously experienced man, lovely guy, working from well back into the Cam Mac days, the 80s, possibly even late 70s. And of course Vanessa Scammell is our MD. So we've got a pretty good good team together. I love the fact that you were saying that this is an Australian design show. Does that come around a lot? No, it's incredibly rare. I think often it's sort of almost like a legal copyright thing. Uh, the producer will buy a package from overseas, say be it Frozen or I don't know what's another good example, Chicago or whatever. Chicago actually was an Australian design, but yeah, often with the newer shows they'll buy the copyright, they'll buy the lighting design, sound design, set design, the whole thing, and every part of it will be a carbon copy of the one overseas. So how excited were you to actually get your hands on this? Uh, with, especially with the role that I had on this as assistant to the sound designer, massively, because it wasn't preconceived and being brought over here, it wasn't being just re-engineered, um, it was being imagined at the same time, so a lot of the decisions that Kelvin was making, sound designer, were in response to what was happening, it was all very creative, and drawing upon his massive experience too. Um, Kelvin actually goes back to the founding days of Circus Oz, um, massive experience in theatre, and so learning from him as he worked was brilliant, especially on classic musical as well, or classic style musical I should mm. say, this musical's only about eight years old. Yeah, and it does have, have everything. It's got the ballet, the tap, the jazz. Yeah, and it's in the classic style. It's, it's in not. The classic style. I wouldn't say it was cinematic. It's not trying to be the movie version of the the show. It's yeah, it's true musical theatre, which is unique for a production that's been made in the last decade. I would say. Do you have a favourite bit in this show? Oh, it has to be the ballet. It's ironic, really, given that the sounds sounds my background. The only point where we're not using any microphones. It's the American Palace Ballet. Oh, and in fact, the Cuban Overture, which is the the end, the Ballet de Beaux-Arts, absolutely fabulous. I love all the scene transitions. I love the sound of the orchestra. Uh, yeah, nothing with mics on then except the orchestra. So. <laughs> But it's beautiful music. I know, it's Gershwin. Yeah, you can't, can't go wrong, really. I know. My favourite, actually, is uh, Rhapsody in Blue, which, of course, the first oh, yeah. first one, well, I think it was the first song was he was, um, yeah, it was commissioned. His, it was his first, first major commission. Mm. That's right, yeah. Yeah, well, An American in Paris is the ballet at the end. Mm. And that features massively throughout. Like, you can hear it at multiple points. Mm. Um, they're, they're big on that, which I really love. It's Me like too. a... It's, it's like... I wouldn't even say in the sense of like a motif, but the recurring theme thing. Andrew Lloyd Webber does it too, and I suppose a lot of composers, but just that carrying on of a certain theme. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Although it isn't like, yeah, it's, it's funny, some, some musicals you get where they have like a sort of a, a leitmotif thing where there's always a suggestion of a certain theme or a person or whatnot. It doesn't have that so much, but it, it's got this... Um, oh, I, guess I, I, yeah, I don't have a musical background, but Dad does. But there's that whole thing of like um, having the extrapolations of a certain theme or the counter harmonies or whatever but always referencing that original piece of music.
Because it's, it started in Brisbane, it premiered mm. in Brisbane. So you actually now have written the book that will be travelling all the way through with all the tour of Australia. I mean, Moulin Rouge was like 10 different kinds of audio protocol and well, no, well over a million dollars worth of equipment. Yeah, well, in American in Paris, is the first season we do put together a, what we call, like, you know, a Bible for the show, which tells the next crew members that will join. And generally speaking, that's not many. The locals take on roles like uh, operating radio mics backstage, or if someone were to get ill, I suppose they would take over mixing. Um, but, yeah, the show set up in Brisbane does tour in exactly the same state to... Melbourne was the next one, and of course Sydney, and finally it will be Perth. That's where we end up. What's it like to know that you've just had the opportunity to create something like this that doesn't come around a lot or help create, um, and now it's going to go to different cities and other people are going to touch basically something that you've had your hands on? Um, what's really interesting is, like, because I've been brought in a difference... Well, I came into Melbourne without warning to actually train someone else in, and now I'm going in on Perth because somebody else is leaving the production. None of that was planned, so it'll be interesting sort of dropping back in and seeing what's changed along the way. But it's lovely seeing the same people again, the same cast members, and yeah, some really nice folks on this show. Are you uh, critiquing of your work? Will you sit there and go, oh no, I should actually, you know, do this or do that? You know, it's funny, uh, I was about to say no, not at all, and especially not as you get older, you sort of... You, become a bit more accepting of little things that you can't change but uh, there's one thing that you will always notice if you do radio microphones and that is cables hanging out of people's necks and backs uh, no one else I'd see in the audience I don't think anyone would have noticed things like that but sometimes I just want to go up with tape and just like <laughs> go in someone's neck and fix it to their back I'm like what's that doing there but yeah I don't think other people are aware of that sort of thing yeah you, you sort of become pretty sensitive to it. So the, a doctor might carry his stethoscope and you're the kind of guy, person that has the tape in his pocket? It's actually funny, yeah, we do. I, the last time I had that conversation with the nurse, she said, oh, you guys get the good stuff, you know? I, I carry it, when I do backstage tracks, I carry a nurse's pouch with all of the tape and the torch and everything. It's, yeah, more or less the same kit, except, of course, I don't have to um, listen to anyone's heartbeat or <laughs> insert catheters, thank goodness. So, where can people find you, Jack? Um, well, I write for System Sound. Um, we occasionally do articles on some of the, the classic shows that we've done over the years. We also have an Instagram account and we post updates of our shows there. I'm looking to expand into writing a little bit more about some of the theory and practices that we have, but in between quite a number of shows at the moment, so we'll get to it soon, I think. And I just want to touch on this before. You're, you were basically saying that your dad has been in the company all the way through the family, right back to JC Williams. How do we go in sound in relation to the world when you're thinking about the West End productions in New York? How are we going? Um, Australia's actually, I feel like it, it's probably superior in some ways to anywhere else in the sense that whilst it developed its own... I mean, all theatrical sound came into existence. I mean, you could argue earlier than the 50s, but I think it really started to take off in the 70s. Um, the first sound company was Mask Sound, I think, that did, you know, sound for theatres, and they started with tape decks back in the 1930s. But in terms of radio miking people and the modern sound that you see in a musical theatre show, that didn't start until the 70s, really, I think. Um, with J.C. Williamson, John started there, he was studying physics and he was working as a dresser and he was brought in because he might know about sound. He wasn't brought in as a sound person. Um, but back to your question about how we stack up against overseas, well, because we've been designing our own shows and working out how that, how that can sound its best, but also 
engineering the designs from overseas, from London and from America, we've really become sort of an accumulation pot of that knowledge and experience from overseas. The director of the sound company, Andrew Bruce, for example, in England that did oh, thousands of shows, um, designed thousands of shows, supplied and engineered that, brought designs over here like Les Mis. And the same thing's true from New York. You know, shows all the way back to Abe Jacobs in the 80s designing you know, classics like, I suppose, Chicago might have been. And then, you know, things like Stephen Schwartz doing Wicked brought that design over and so we learn from that. We also buy gear to match those specs. So Australian becomes very much in some ways borrowed from their knowledge, but we have also developed a lot of our own. It's quite different to this theatre. This is the Theatre Royal in Sydney, obviously uh, opened in November last year. This um, theatre sits underneath a train train line yeah. um, and also it has a, the highest proscenium arch. Does that affect at all the sound and what you have to do? Well, goes by reputation. There haven't been a lot of shows here for a while, but by uh, not reputation so much as history, I know this venue from the original production of Cats, which was famous for having moments where the train was extremely audible. I didn't notice it during this production, but this isn't the only theatre in Sydney that does have the sound of an underground. I'm pretty sure that the capital has the same thing. I'm fairly certain that during Chicago I heard trains. Well, you do see things on your spectrum analysis device. But yeah. you're right. I will honestly tell you I've been here before and you can hear the trains, but I did not hear anything. No, I didn't hear anything during the show. We did run it quite loud. And I'm only saying that now because it's actually top of my mind. I never even thought about it. Yeah, well, if there is one thing that I, I don't want to ruin shows for you, but in future, listen out for the sound of the, um, the fans and the stage lights. Because in the quiet moments, it's another thing that we struggle with. You'll always hear just whirring of fans. Wow. And, um, yeah, we had this famous incident once where an international designer came out here and he was irate about it. And he was screaming about it. He said, oh, you know, like, we're going to do a session tomorrow and I want you to turn off your fans and we're gonna, I'm going to show you how big a difference it makes. And he went in there and they did the thing and they could still hear the whirring and what he didn't realise it was his amplifiers because the sound yes, amplifiers yeah, that had yeah, fans yeah. in them was just as bad. So, anyway, that's all. Are there a lot of fans because this is quite a big dance number? Are there fans backstage? No. No, no not at all. In to fact, if anything, the, the... they often ask for it to be warmer because you can overcompensate and it's not good for ballet dancers to have frozen limbs. Well, that would be interesting again because someone has to tune all of the instruments and once that sort of temperature goes down as well, so it's a... That generally doesn't happen to be as much of a problem with what we're doing. I think it would if there was a change in humidity and temperature, perhaps like if you were doing outdoor concerts. You get that, like, let's say if you're doing... We do concerts in Hong Kong occasionally. And, yeah, the difference between day and night over there could be quite drastic and could affect tuning, but, of course, they tune before the performance. I think, yeah, with the performers like this, with ballet performers, it's really just about keeping them limber. And so, yeah, they like it warm. Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure it's to been... sit behind you. <laughs> you might have seen, heard him clapping my yeah, you heart probably out. probably see me dancing along. Yes, me too. We should get you behind the mixing console, actually. Yeah. A good way to get a good view. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much. My pleasure. And um, do you know what you'll be working on next so people could look out for your work? Well, I'm joining the company as one of the operators of American in Paris in Perth. After that, I'm not sure. Well, I can't wait. Yeah, I'm thank you so to much. Back in the company. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been Let Me Entertain You Inside the Minds of Musical Theatre. Thanks for listening. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends. But most 
Importantly, go and see a show. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Nice to be in orbit.